Each August, my family vacations for two weeks in a... For a ca- I'm going to start over. <laughs> Each August, my family vacations for two weeks in a cabin on Mount Desert Island in Maine. We often explore the back roads on bikes, and one early morning I sat, set out on my own. I wanted to explore a new route. I hoped I would take... I hoped would take me in a nice long loop, but I got lost. Just as I was steeling myself to turn around and retrace the long uphill road back to the cabin, I pedaled around one last curve and saw two things simultaneously. First, a tiny white church with a small, perfect steeple and bright red doors, and then the prominent sign with lovely church-like calligraphy, Backside Redemption. I stopped, wheeled my bike to the side of the road, leaned on the handlebars, and stared in awe at the sheer boldness of the declaration. Who were these people who could actually admit that the redemption they offered was the backsided kind? A sort of come-as-you-are, seat-of-the-pants, possibly not even fit-for-good-society kind of redemption. Then I saw the little recycling hut off to the side behind the church. Belatedly, I realized that the marvelous sign did not refer to the church at all, but to the recycling hut, identified as back-side because this part of the island faces the mainland, not the ocean. Sheepishly, I looked around and spotted a smaller sign offering up the real name for the church. But by then, it was too late. The little white building with its neatly painted red doors had forever sunk into my psyche as the Backside Redemption Church. This image has become a touchstone for me, a reminder that the only kind of redemption we ever really get is the backside kind, the kind that doesn't come in the package or on the schedule we have in mind. Like getting lost on my bike and then stumbling upon the church, it's backside redemption when a wrong turn takes us to a place that brings us up short and makes us stop and stare in amazement. Backside redemption can be waiting for us in the more drastic detours of our lives, such as the plans that don't materialize, the mistakes we make, the delays, disappointments, and losses that somehow, over the long run, lead us to the new insight and show us where we're really trying to go. The little church and the recycling center offer a lovely serendipity. Both have to do with redemption, What happens when we recycle bottles and cans? They are transformed. They are made into something else. Although it may seem a homely analogy for for something as lofty as our souls, that's exactly what we're after. In our inconsistent and often clumsy ways, we're aiming for transformation. Each time we take ourselves in hand and change our direction, ask forgiveness, and start anew, we reaffirm our belief that we are redeemable. We don't want to stay exactly as we are. We don't want to keep being driven by the hair-trigger temper or the relentless bitter grudge or by our impatience 
or harsh judgments. We want to loosen the pinching in our hearts and live with more wonder, serenity, kindness, and wisdom. We want to live so there's a little shimmer of grace left behind when we're gone. Backside redemption isn't straightforward or easy. It doesn't fall down on us from on high or come in a flash of illumination. It is filled with false starts and wrong turns, lessons we learn but then have to learn all over again. Backside redemption isn't about saving us, but instead shaping us, and it's the most certain redemption available in this sweet world. Have you ever heard it said, who'd want the Unitarian Universalist seven principles recited on their deathbed? Have you ever heard that? It speaks to us looking at our theology. These principles are the closest that we come to anything that we all agree on. They are mostly an ethical way of living that we covenant to affirm and promote. And the first and the seventh one are considered by some to be the heart of UU theology. The first one, everyone has inherent worth and dignity. And the seventh, that there is an interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. This year, as many of you know, I did a Monday to Friday residency as a hospital chaplain. Late in the spring, I got a call that a patient wanted to see a rabbi. I recognized the patient's name. I had first met him when he'd asked for a rabbi during Yom Kippur. He was feeling the need for forgiveness. He'd been estranged from his younger daughter, and he wanted my help in trying to find her and contact her so he could ask her for forgiveness. When I saw him in the spring for the third and final time, he was very quiet and frail. He recognized me and was okay again um, that I wasn't a rabbi. He shared his pain again about his daughter and his son. Then he asked me what I thought about what happens after death. After a long, deep breath, I guessed his question had questions behind it. Would he be forgiven? If not, what would happen to him? Anything? What about his family? Would they ever forgive him and recognize that he loved them? We talked for a while, and he told me he didn't want to die alone. He just wanted comfort and wished he had someone, maybe someone like me, someone who could comfort him. He was alone and lonely and afraid and couldn't hold on to that temporary comfort I could offer. That backside redemption was not there for him. It was a sad and a holy moment. Late in the spring when I was called to be with patients and their families when death was imminent, 
I began to use the five statements I had learned when my mother was in hospice. I've come to think of them as theological, a way to live and express ourselves in our relationships long before we're on our deathbeds. The five statements, and we each have the endings and many things for them, are thank you for, I forgive you for, Please forgive me for, I love you, and goodbye. I'm going to talk about UU theology proposed from three different perspectives. A UU seminary president and theologian, a UUA committee, and a children's summer camp. I first met Reverend Michael Tino, the beloved minister here 10 years ago at the annual fall conference for religious educators. The conference theme was the theology of religious education. Reverend Dr. Rebecca Parker started by saying that RE calls forth the power of the soul on behalf of life, calls forth power to bring peace in the world that the work we do in religious education is in the context that humans are capable of resistance, of repair, of savoring and saving life, having reverence and joy for life and trust and confidence in humans. Each new generation brings fresh hope and souls more open to peace. The passion for peace and doing right is unquenchable, and the power to say yes to life is at the heart of our work in religious education. Yes, it's a plug for RE. I want you all to welcome your new DRE and help her in this quest. This quest is not just in religious education, but this whole community to build an intergenerational beloved community. I was a brand new DRE back then, just three months in, and I was just blown away by Dr. Parker's take on UU theology. It was the first time she'd presented it, and these 10 years since, she has taught it as a class. Others have taught it. It has become a book she co-wrote with John Buren's called A House for Hope. I highly recommend. I'd not heard all the other ologies. I'd not heard those words. She called them the big words, the 50 cent and the dollar words, and she'd help us learn to use them in a in a sentence, and she drew pictures for us to understand them. I've come to understand that those ologies are the big questions that we have in life, which is one of the reasons we come to religious homes. So, here are the words. Soterology, or Christology, is the roof. It protects us. It's what saves us or shelters us. The walls are ecclesiology, what gathers and holds us together, the nature and the purpose of the congregation. 
The windows are missiology, how we look out and see others, other houses, other neighborhoods, and discover what is our relationship to our neighbors. The door is eschatology, where we're coming from and where we're going to. The floor, the grounding, is theology, is the nature of human beingness and our relationship to ultimacy, what some call God. And finally, all around us are the rivers and the birds and the sun, and that's pneumatology, the breath, the spirit of life, the elemental life force. So the soterology, our heritage from our universalist side, is that there's no preordainment to heaven and hell. Jesus saved all of us. And what saves us now is the power of creative love that Jesus made visible. This is our universalist side. His life was an an example of the attraction to the power of the beauty of love. We do hell harm to each other. We're all going to end up in heaven, the universalist said, so we may as well learn how to get along here. We're not divided. We're all brothers and sisters. We're all siblings. Our Unitarian side said that if the world was going to be saved, it would be from human beings using reason and power and choice. And it's up to us to save the world. Humanists believe it's only human beings. Theists think that that happens in collaboration with God, that we can become more godlike. Most UUs have moved away from heaven and hell being beyond this world. Many of us think that hell is when we relate cruelly, violently, oppressively. That heaven is love and support, doing good, justice-making. Hell is evil. It is oppressive empires and tyrannical people and totalitarianism. Evil is when we become complicit in the structures that are harmful to people, to life. What we need to be saved from is that evil and violence that is all around us that seeps in like groundwater. There's a connection between education and peacemaking. We have to reclaim our historic Unitarian Universalist role in education kindergarten, public school, so many things that so many Unitarian Universalists helped. What we need to do now is run for school boards. We need to keep the very conservative right from being the only voice. We need to help stop Texas from rewriting American history and the textbooks that are used in our schools all across the country. Education is fundamentally a spiritual practice by which our soul grows. 
to unfold the sacred on earth. This view of education is grounded in theology and makes it spiritual and socially transformative and helps us grow closer to the sacred. We might think that that doesn't fit with the separation of church and state, but look at all that education does for us. Eschatology, where we're going and where we came from. Well, we have a living tradition. We're moving toward a more just and compassionate society, what some might call the kingdom of God, coming to earth now. We can define that as a beloved community, and we're building it with justice and equity for all. There's no process, no guarantee, though, that this process is just going to happen. We have to be a part of it. We have to help it. We have to learn to language about a hard language, language that might be uncomfortable, like the language of reverence, some of the words that I'm using today, but also words that harm people, like dark and good and bad and colonizing and subjugating and slavery. We have to talk about these things. We say that we have, Rebecca Parker says, that we have an already realized eschatology. It's completely available right now. We are creating this heaven right now in what we do. Missiology, um, you probably never hear the word mission in um, Unitarian Universalist circles, but that's where it comes from. And for us, it is in how we are with our neighbors and how we are when we go to New Orleans and help our neighbors, when we do other things, how we accept them, how we realize that all humans have a religious culture. Ours isn't the only one, but the differences are transient. The commonalities are permanent, and we have to find those, and we have to respect the diversity. We have to continue to make our house here be welcome to all who agree with what we want the world to be. It's often a question asked, would you let a Ku Klux Klan person, would they be welcome in a UU congregation? And the answer is no. Um, that they don't envision the world the way that we do, and that is something for being here. Pneumatology. Um, You know, nature is so important to Unitarian Universalists. Many, many of us draw our strength from being in nature. It is all around us. Many of us feel that reverence for life there. Emerson thought that the oversoul had a sense of God that was all pervasive, that it was everywhere, and that we're all a part of it. Our thoughts about God evolved 
over the centuries, and we've moved away from those oppressive notions of God, of being white and male and punishing and fear-producing. And now we see when we use the word God as God being larger, what is in everything, the sacred and the holy. It's a language of spirit that transcends any of us. And it's directly experienced. It's like a river. It moves through all of us. We need to look now at who's living in our theological home. Does our home need to be remodeled? Does it need to be transformed? We have to discern what is life-giving for our spirits and for others and allow it to be changed by those coming in. We say we have radical pluralism. One view of religious diversity is many roads up one mountain. Another is many mountains. Can all of our mountains come together? To whom does our theology belong? I would say not just to us, but to anyone who needs its shelter and might find it as restoration for life and transformation. Dr. Parker and others began asking questions about our theological house if we might need to do some house cleaning. So the Unitarian Universalist Association called forth the Commission on Appraisal, a committee. That's another UU joke. We can't decide something, let's get a committee together. So this committee comes together and they came up with this, engaging our theological diversity. And In very typical Unitarian Universalist fashion, it asks a lot of questions. Good questions. Good questions. What holds us together? Where do we come from? Who are we? To what do we aspire? How do we frame the world? How shall we serve? Sadly, I don't think it answered all those questions. I don't think it's resolved yet. I still don't think that we have something like Reverend Strong's very concise view of what theology is. One thing that stands out for me in reviewing this again, when it first came out I taught it as an adult religious education class. And if you haven't read it, I really encourage you to, if you have any interest in this topic. You might, since you're here. The thing that stands out is about our children and how our youth leave and how our children drift away, too, because they need something more concrete. They need adults to be able to talk to them about what they believe. Adults have to have the courage to do that, but they also have to have 
wisdom and knowledge of our heritage and our identity. And um, another shameless plug for RE, you can get that when you teach RE. A lot of times new people come in and the children learn this more. But it's still, I'm embarrassed to say, after being a director of religious education for 10 years, it's still elusive and hard to grasp. So the third part of looking at our theology is from a children's summer camp. And we are doing pieces. I have done pieces of it in all the four years that I have been here. I've taught you the song that goes along with it. It was written by a minister and a religious educator. It's called Chalice Camp. And I've heard people say about it that their children understood Unitarian Universalism better after one week of camp than they did in all the years of religious education with every Sunday. So Sherry and Layla came up with four faith statements. And again, you may recognize them from hearing the song. It's a blessing we were born. It matters what we do. We don't have to do it alone. And what each of us knows about God, that's a small g, is a piece of the truth. The Chalice Camp song has a fifth verse, and it's from a Rumi poem. Let the beauty we love be what we do. The authors of the Chalice Camp did five pages of reflection on that, and it's a whole nother sermon, and I knew I was out of time. So I made copies of it and left it outside because our children are going to have some opportunities but I encourage you to. It is the most succinct that I've ever seen and drawing from all of our heritage to come to why these four statements say who we are. So, I would ask you to continue your your search to continue if Michael offers an adult coming of age again to do that that that's a place where you can get more familiar with what you believe I ask you to find ways to reclaim these theological concepts and words that make sense to us now like backside redemption and forgiveness and reverence and gratitude and grace. Let us experience these things together. We do already. We just don't always name them. And in doing so, let us build that beloved community and have beloved conversations so that we do let the beauty we love be what we do. Let us accept that beauty and grace that is all around us and among us. May it be so. Amen. Blessed.